we're we people, not me people. It's really about the greater goal and, and achieving kind of greatness. And I think anyone who's arrogant and thinks that they can do it all is silly. I've been taught through a lot of my mentors throughout life that the smartest people in the world know that they don't know anything. Hey folks, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast that highlights impact-driven business leaders and innovators, along with technology that is creating a more sustainable future. Today, I'm joined by Jay Bellows, the president of Core Power, a vertically integrated energy storage leader that is ensuring the reliability of the grid as we invest in new renewable power sources. We've previously talked a lot about how the clean energy transition necessitates an evolution in how we approach the balance of supply and demand for power. Companies like OhmConnect and GridPoint showcase solutions that can help stabilize our increasing energy demand. And we all see and hear more about the homegrown renewable energy growth across the country. But what if we greatly amplified all these efforts by creating an energy supply stockpile? Jay and CorePower believe that battery storage systems can and will do just that. For the better part of his career, Jay led Northern Reliability, or NRI, an early adopter to invest in this technology. He then facilitated NRI's merger with CorePower, originally a domestic battery manufacturer, in order to fully control the life cycle of an energy storage product, from the production of its component parts to the system's installation and eventual operation. These vital pieces of infrastructure act as a cache of power that can help prevent blackouts during periods of peak demand or emergencies, allowing the energy supply to become more reliable, resilient, and redundant. Jay has even been able to place these systems on wheels, developing a new way for geographically disparate utility companies to share the electricity resources and possibly one of my new favorite inventions. The grid is such a fascinating topic, and I'm eager to hear more about CORE's role in America's domestic manufacturing renaissance, not to mention Jay's philosophy on the benefits of listening as a leader. All right, let's get started. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jay. Let's start at the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up in Massachusetts, actually. Fell in love with this state in my early years, and it's really a wonderful place to be and a great place to raise a family. Quality of life is incredibly high, and with companies like Core coming here and bringing really high-quality jobs and career opportunities, it just helps in the whole aura of what we're trying to achieve here. It's nice. Did you always know you wanted to be running businesses when you grew up? Was that kind of in the cards from day one? I originally was go- wanted to be an attorney, and then ultimately, I fell in love with technology and started going that route. And I've been fortunate in my professional career. I was involved in running companies and network infrastructure systems integration during Y2K when everybody thought their computers were going to blow up and then telecom during the fiber boom. So if you look at the triangle of technology, you know, it's hardware interconnection and ultimately the foundation to all of that is power. So it just kind of led me to the power side. And my father worked for one of the largest utilities in the country at the time was called Northeast Utilities and now is Eversource, but you know, was a hydroelectrical engineer in that realm. So it was always been in always been in my family a little bit and I've always been intrigued by it. So, you know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, I guess, ultimately. It sounds like it. So from growing up in Massachusetts to Core Power, give us a little bit of taste of what's happening now. So I'm the president of Core Power. Before being the president here, I was the president and CEO of a company called Northern Liability. Been around for about 50 years. We were an early derivative of Northern Power Systems, which was a really early energy integrator, renewable energy integrator and innovator, started right around 1970, went out on our own, 
as NRI and build systems all over the world, about 1,100 deployments worldwide. In those early days, it was really all about bringing energy where there wasn't any. So those deployments were tied to renewables, tied to gensets, co-generated, all kinds of really exciting, innovative applications in mountaintops, oil rigs, Antarctica, Arctic Circle, really crazy applications. And in about 2012, we started bringing that innovation and knowledge and intellect in energy storage to the grid as grid-tied systems and grew through that process and started looking for a U.S. battery manufacturer and came across Core and vetted their product for about a year. As you can imagine, when you build systems in Antarctica, yeah. you have to make sure that the components are really top-notch. So vetted their product, really liked it, started using their systems. And together between Core Power and NRI, NRI had had an idea about mobile energy storage. And working together, we developed a company called Nomad, was a first-to-market utility-scale mobile energy storage system. Through that process, we identified that our companies worked just really well together. And for an emerging battery manufacturer and a really long marketed, so to say, energy storage company, it made sense for them to come together and be be vertically integrated in a way that other companies are not. And we did that coming up on two years and been going gangbusters ever since. That's awesome. You think had the benefit of a nice long courtship with some tested projects before you cemented the deal. Yes, for sure. And I I mean, obviously there's significant benefits to you at working with a US company, but beyond that, you know, you have to make sure that the product is really good too. Yeah. And again, we've been around for so long, we had partnerships with lots of battery manufacturers from all over the world. One of the key components was just having someone answer the phone, quite frankly, right. support and level of just awareness and ability to help and, and be a part of was something that you don't get currently in the industry right now. And our, our vertical integration is incredibly important because for us, the key piece, and well, there's several key pieces, but one big thing right now, obviously, is safety. With our systems, we own and control all the IP from the battery BMS through the rack BMS, the master BMS into the controls, which we build in their entirety here. And then all the way back to our network operating center where we integrate with all of our systems can maintain, monitor, operate, we have market integration, we have all kinds of things that can go into that, that just bring a level of security that's really not heard of yet in the industry. Yeah. And that merger was really the final piece to that, making sure that we own all of that integrity throughout. Where's home for you? Where, where are you based? I'm in Waterbury, Vermont. We have offices all over the world. We have an office in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Our corporate headquarters are there. We have an office in Arizona where we're building the Coreplex. Our solutions manufacturing is here in Waterbury, Vermont. Offices in Germany, France, Asia, Newfoundland. We're all over. Everyone's got a presence in Newfoundland, I think, right? <laughs> they should if they don't. So how does what you're seeing in the industry now compare to the previous booms in telecom and technology and the cycles that they went through in their heyday? This is like those two industries combined times 10 on steroids, right? Because yeah. ultimately, electricity is the most taken for granted entity in the world. No one even realizes it's on. And it's really the foundation of everything that we're trying to do. And as we look at our goals between now and 2035, whether it's electrification on the vehicle side of things or just the grid in general, getting away from fossil fuels, going towards renewables, this is a significant transformation. We've had pretty significant transformations in the past, right? Deregulation was a significant one for the utility world. This is way bigger than all of that. What we're doing, ultimately, if you think about our goals as a country, our goals as a world, I hope, but our goals as a country, 
is we're saying as we go towards 2035, we're going to take 300 million registered internal combustion engines that are on the road today that are they generate their own electricity are now all going to become consumers of the grid. On top of that, we're getting away from furnaces, going to heat pumps. You know, we're moving to electric tools. We're moving, you know, electric lawnmowers. I mean, just it, it goes and goes and goes, and it's all great. But at the same time, so we're we're increasing our grid demand. Let's say three times over. It's really really hard to measure, but we know it's going to be a large amount. We're growing that demand, and at the same time, saying that our ability to push a button to generate electricity is also going to go away. So we're getting away from fossil fuels and all the peaker plants and all the things that we do now so that we can hit the demand that we have coming. How do we do that? How do we integrate all the renewable energy that we need and want, wind power, solar, even hydro to some degree, which all, by the way, have environmental hurdles to overcome? really with solar being probably the least impacting if you think about it. But how do you take all that electricity being generated at the renewable level that happens when mother nature wants it to, not necessarily when we need it? And how do we make it all applicable to our demand? And the only possible way of doing that is storage. It's it. That's what we have right now. And that's what we're going to have for the next 10 to 15 years, really, until newer types of technology come to the table and grow and or current technology continues to grow. Getting to the storage side of things, you know, core been around for 53 years. The truth is, is we're so in our adolescence still. There's all kinds of different applications, all types of use cases. I have conversations with people all the time, different utilities, different customers, CNI, all types of emerging demand opportunities. And I learn something new every single day. What's the problem? What's the problem that someone's having? Often it's something that I wouldn't even have thought of power quality issues, avoidance of brown and blackouts, like rolling outages. There's all these things that are coming with the increased demand that we're going to see. And storage is really the answer. And it's going to be the answer for a long time. So as a comparison to those other industries, they are really nothing compared to what this demand is going to be like, what this need ultimately becomes is, is significantly much larger than, than anything we've seen so far in any technology industry, in my opinion. Did you have a sense for that on the horizon when you began in the industry? Was that something that you could sense was coming? Yeah. You know, interestingly enough, when I took over NRI, there wasn't much going on. But going back to my father, Northeast Utilities, again, now Eversource, had the largest pump storage facility in the country, maybe beyond that, but I know for sure in the country at the time, in Northfield, Massachusetts. And that's where my father was actually based and ran that facility. And storage was always something that came to mind for me. And I think when you're in other industries that are so dependent on power, in telecom, we build data centers all the time. Data centers are power-hungry locations, right? And you have to have redundancy, resiliency, disaster recovery plans, all of that go into play at those locations. So I looked at what I thought storage could be. And as aggressive as I was, it's even exceeded my expectations. What was the path for you in NRI? A couple of the board members had actually reached out to me to come in and take it over. And so when I came in, I really came in more as like a consultant and looked at the company and saw what was here and then ultimately made the choice of taking it over. And I brought with me a couple of really great employees that had been with me in the past and on top of the incredibly talented engineering and field group that was already here 
I would invite you here anytime, Connor, that the pictures on the wall, you know, we have systems being built in like 1970, a lot of systems in crazy locations, seeing the build outs in Antarctica for the nuclear ban treaty sites. I mean, there's penguins in the pictures, right? It's just really, it's really interesting to see all of the technology advancements that were happening and the world didn't even know they needed it yet. So once I was here and saw what was going on, it just grabbed me for sure. And the project that you worked together on with Core was the Nomad Power Project. Give us a little bit about that. What was the system and how was this an important part of both of your strategic plans at the time? Sure. So in 2012, we built a system at NRI, a really large system, expensive. Prices have come down a lot, so you can imagine how expensive <laughs> it was. And we turned the system on in June and we shut it off in August. And that was it. They met their once a year peak and the system sat there. And I, having come from the world that I was in before, which had a lot of remote access, interconnection stuff, it was easy. It floored me that there's no way that we can share assets. Like, that's so silly. This system's going to sit there when utilities all over the country could use that. And so I started asking questions from our engineering staff and got some early designs based on kind of what I was thinking. And then on top of it, I started talking to our battery manufacturing partners at the time. And I didn't really want to give away the full mobile story. And I also knew that no one would like it as far as the battery world was concerned. So I would ask people, would you mind if we built our systems with your batteries in them in our facility and just moved them one time? Because when you build systems using NMC technology, which was the predominant technology at the time, you have to build it, test it, take it back apart and ship the battery separate from the enclosure and then build it again in the field. The question wasn't crazy. It makes a lot of business sense. Yeah. How do I avoid you know a third of my deployment costs? And every battery manufacturer I talked to said, no way. We don't want to take the risk. So for years and years, I asked those battery companies every single year that same exact question. And every single year got the same answer. And so when I met Lindsay Goral, who was the founder of Core, we tested the batteries. We started using them in some of our deployments, came to visit us. And I sat with him and I asked him the same question, expecting the exact same answer. And instead, I got a really thoughtful answer that even now I look back on and am so appreciative of. He said, you know, if that's important to you, let's try to figure out a way that we can pull that off. By the end of that week, I had shared the whole idea of that mobile storage. And two weeks later, we had a joint venture started and we were off and running on that process. Right. Nomad is really industry changing. I mean, we're looking at a system that's going to do hopefully exactly what I thought it could do years and years ago. I know that it physically can do that. The systems are amazing. Two megawatt hour, one megawatt rolling energy storage system. It means that a utility in Arkansas that has a peak in July can hit their peak and then it can roll out to Minnesota where there's a winter peak or North Dakota or even Vermont. The ability to share an asset is monstrous. Now, it, it doesn't stop ultimately just with the utility usage either, right? It goes on and on. We can use it. We can tie it to gen sets. We can reduce the generator runtime, make them incredibly efficient. We can do off-grid application. I mean, there's so many things talking about events, sporting events, shows, trade shows, all kinds of things where we can bring a green element, a new renewable element, an efficiency and carbon neutralization element to the table. It's significant. For me in particular, seeing that come to realization after so many years of trying was um, near and dear to my heart. Paint a picture for listeners. When you say system and moving some, you know, moving a system from Arkansas 
to North Dakota or Minnesota. What does that look like? So if a tractor trailer truck, ultimately, this is a, a 40 foot enclosure. It's not just like sitting inside a tractor trailer truck. It has a significant chassis. This is a chassis that's built off of seismic activity reduction, like a mobile MRI machine. And then it's built with significant insulation, fire suppression. I mean, it's this thing's built to the nine and it's traveling down the road. Just so happens to say Nomad on it. The doors are all accessible from the outside, which is really important. Again, our longevity in this industry allows us to think way ahead of what's necessary and needed. So we try to get way ahead of whatever head of area jurisdiction is looking for. We literally can bring a tractor trailer truck and drop it off, have it deployed in under five minutes. So you can imagine like a disaster recovery application, right? Like huge natural disasters that happen. The Nomad can be there. That's one major initiative within CORE. Give us a couple of other lines of business or products or services that stand out or that you focus on. So I focus on everything. So I'll I'll give you the full picture. What identifies CORE as being really different than everybody else, there's there's several things. The first, we're a U.S. company building U.S. product with U.S. employees for U.S. customers. That's one of our big things. We're very, very focused on that from the CorePlex outlook. We also do service the European and Asian markets as well, but we do that with product from Asia. So we're, our U.S. product is destined for here on purpose. We're not partnering with somebody to become a certain percentage of something that's going to meet you know, an IRA derivative. That's actually who we are, and that's not going to change. So that's a big differentiator. The other thing is we're vertically integrated. Unlike other companies, all the other companies in the industry – they focus on one of the things, right? So they're a battery manufacturer, or they're a battery module rack manufacturer, or they're an ESS provider and they buy their cells and modules from somebody else, or they're an installer. We are all of those things. We manufacture our own cells, our own modules, our own racks, our own BMS battery management system. And we build all of those here. Totally integrated our systems. We design, build, manufacture, install, and then operate ourselves. Everything's fluid and seamless, and it all comes back to our knock, ultimately, which is to say advanced would be an understatement. We have 40-plus years of market integration information, a significant AI and computer learning process. I mean, we're monitoring solar flares to see how that upsets the grid. We have a significant, significant amount of data built into this. We model against every single ISO market every day, and our models do quite well. Our vertical integration is impressive, and that's a huge differentiator between us and everybody else in the market. Coreplex, give us kind of the rundown of what that is and how it fits into vertical integration strategy. The Coreplex is going to be our battery manufacturing facility. Broken ground on that already and working through the process of getting that done, hoping to have products as early as the very beginning of 2025. So we're going to be doing in our first phase of build out about 7.5 gigawatt hours of battery module rack deliverable. So that's cells and modules coming from that facility. And we're going to be dual chemistry. Also a significant differentiator between us and almost everybody else is that we do both NMC and LFP. So our facility in Arizona will be 2.5 gigawatt hours of NMC and 5 gigawatt hours of LFP. As soon as we're done with the first phase, we're actually building the infrastructure to handle both phases. The second phase will get us up to about 18 gigawatt hours in totality out of the Arizona facility. That means that our products will be entirely built and deliverable from the U.S. and its supply chain. When you say dual chemistry, how would someone understand that in their daily life? 
About 97% of the battery market right now is mixed between NMC, which is nickel manganese cobalt, and LFP, which is lithium iron phosphate. Those are the two significant battery chemistries. There's some emerging ones, and they all every battery chemistry has its benefits. Kind of the difference between those two, these numbers are pretty general because some are slightly different than others, but NMC is a, a much more energy dense battery. An LFP battery, let's say, is about 165 watt hours per kilogram. NMC is going to be about 285 watt hours per kilogram. So NMC is going to be a little bit more dense or significantly more dense. So you're talking about more energy in an enclosure using NMC than LFP. LFP in the market has a mindset of being a little bit safer chemistry-wise, but it's, it really is offset quite a bit by the fact that NMC has been around a long time. So NMC has kind of gone through its growth process and is incredibly safe right now as well. So they're both really pertinent. They both have their different applications. NMC usually has a higher C rate, which means that you can discharge and charge much faster. So you can see where there's some applications for that, right? EV charging. And then the LFP is a little bit on the, usually on the slower side at a 0.5 C, which is means a two hour or longer duration of discharge and or charge. And those are going to be larger grid supporting opportunities where the footprint and the real estate doesn't matter quite as much, right? You don't need to pack in as much density as you can in a footprint there. And inherent in both of those products are critical minerals. And it's a hot topic that everyone's trying to figure out. I mean, what's your approach to doing it the right way? And what do we need to do as a country to equip ourselves to continue having reliable, resilient, redundant power sources, American made? Actually, we're we're really fortunate. Of course, founder Lindsey Goral, who I talked about earlier, actually comes from the mining world. He owns several mines and has been involved in that industry for a really long time. So we have a really distinct perspective towards this and a huge benefit in this because he understands it. And we're working really hard to get our supply chain in its entirety from here. And I think just the integrity of that industry and where it's coming from and the responsibility and accountability aspect of that, you know, you bring that to the United States and there's a significant amount of legislation to secure the safety and mindset of mining. I think that's going to be part of that whole process. Our focus point in that is to get it all here, as much of it here as we possibly can. Now, the piece that a lot of people don't understand or or don't realize is that it's not just the mining, right? The mining, like I'll use lithium. Lithium's everywhere. It's not necessarily mining the lithium. It's also the processing aspect of that. And we're looking into doing that as well as, as best we can here. We have great partners on our anode and cathode side of things too. So the supply chain is something that was kind of near and dear to us right from the beginning because of Lindsay's history. And we were able to jump ahead of that. So we, we feel really good about our direction and where we'll end up in that realm. Give us the real quick one sentence on why domestic energy production and storage is so important. Like, why does that matter? The truth is, is as we talked about early in this conversation, right, is that energy storage is the holy grail to what we're trying to do. I don't even know the number, but I think it's over 90% of all of our product comes from Asia. If anything were to happen, we are completely dependent on what we're calling the holy grail for our electrical needs on other countries. That puts us at risk. The goal of the IRA is to make sure that we are not at risk. I give this legislation just and everybody that developed it so much credit because they identified the need and they built a program that brings it here. It's a really astute piece of legislation. We're still learning and they're still making some slight changes as they're proving this all out. But 
ultimately what they've done is they said, bring manufacturing here. We're going to make it financially and operationally benefit to do so. You know, that's kind of perfect world. Things like that don't happen often in our world. And we truly need that energy independence in energy storage is the link that makes everything work within all of our electrification goals, renewable or otherwise. And we need to make sure that that's coming from here. And I think everyone has a much better sense of the importance of reliability of supply chain coming out of COVID, you know, living through supply chain realities when it came to consumer products, I think opened the eyes of a lot of American oh, consumers sure. to supply yeah. chains in general. And I think it's not lost on, on folks, but I do think it's good to just connect the dots for folks, <laughs> especially because from a battery storage perspective, it really is an intermediary, but it's an intermediary that without which you can't get from next generation generation to demand and consumption. You know, the, the COVID conversation is a, a real one, right? The just-in-time mindset of everything that we were doing, we didn't quite realize just how much we were teetering on a wall in that process. And we're still recovering. There's still pieces of the supply chain right now that are rearing their ugly head and having significant delays. On the electrical side, transformers, connectivity, inner switch gear, all that stuff is showing some real delays and deliverables at this point. So that's a really good question. What is the growth profile look like for core right now? What are you most excited about? Where are you guys going? Oh, well, the growth is really exciting. The opportunities are vast. We have great partners, great customers, great investors. We're really fortunate. We're in a great place. We didn't build this because of the opportunities with DOE. We were building this long before DOE. It just so happened that we were building it the right way. So it fell in line with what the DOE wanted to do. You know, you're seeing companies getting announcements now. They change direction in order to work with the DOE. We didn't have to change a thing. We were heading in that direction already. So that's kind of a pat on the back for everybody that was involved in the development of this. It's reaffirming knowing that we did everything the right way. So that's kind of nice. The things I'm most excited about is I love different applications. I love technological advancements. And, you know, we talk to people all the time about their use cases for storage and how it works and what their problems are and how we can overcome those with storage. I'm really excited to see what the next generation of deliverables are. I know what the batteries are going to be, right? There are our type of batteries, NMC, LFP, different form factors and things like that, which just basically means we have prismatic, we have cylindrical, it's the battery module type. But it's really what the solutions are to the grid. Right now, because of the excitement in the industry, you see all these great big, huge deployments, right? These gigawatt hour deployments everywhere. And they're great. Don't get me wrong. Those are awesome. But that shows the immaturity of the market right now because it's just big bangs, right? Like we want them in. We want these, these big operational facilities. However, if you think about it from the utility mindset, like Connor, you and I own a, a utility and we got authority to purchase 100 megawatt hours worth of system for our entire grid. Would we want to put that in one site where it's a single point of failure, even if it is bi-directional, quad-directional, whatever? We, if something happens to that one site, all of your assets down, you'd probably want to diversify that, right? You'd probably want to say, I would love 100 one megawatt hour systems in neighborhoods at CNI, you know, manufacturing facilities. I'd want them all over because... From our knock, we can manage those as a fleet, meaning we can run those independently, we can run them as a group, we can group sections off, we can do all kinds of things, including building a really nice resiliency, redundancy, disaster recovery application. So 
for your and my utility, we don't have to roll trucks from neighboring utilities during outages. We can have a nice DR plan based on the autonomy of that location and what's stored there. So there's all of these realms that are starting to emerge. And if you look at the benefits in the benefit stack of energy storage, the return on the investment is very quick, right? This isn't like solar that had a long return. Energy storage already made financial sense before the IRA. Well, now with the IRA, there's tax credits upwards of 50%. So now between three and five year ROI becomes between a year and a half and, and two and a half, right? It's crazy. So if you can hit all of these benefits in the stack, you're looking at ROI potentially of like a year. And these assets last 20 years or more. The financial application here is significant, but I think what's most exciting for me is is really the operational applications that go into play and how we can overcome significant hurdles and make sure that the electrical supply is safe, secure, redundant, and that people don't lose power ever. Because the thing that I think gets lost a lot of times when there's outages, you know, when my refrigerator shuts off, you know, and my food gets warm and I get irritated, there's someone somewhere whose ventilator shut off. And that's significant. If we can secure their world while also driving down the cost of electricity, making renewables pertinent, making sure that the power quality is there, everything that we need, that means that we literally checked every box and finding really cool ways to make it work for everybody, I think, is what we're going to see in this next round of integration and implementations kind of all over the grid. So that's what I'm most excited for. And I think when we've seen so many more heat waves or extreme weather events that are knocking down power lines and cutting off neighborhoods, like people's eyes are open to this opportunity, this need, and people are excited about it. You know, if you just look over the last couple of years, the the amount of events that have happened, I think on the recovery from those, the grid is such a huge part of that. And we get hit pretty hard with the slap in the face of the event. But the recovery is something that we don't often hear a lot about, right? That it's weeks at times and people don't have electricity or food or in places like Florida where it's really hot air conditioning or all the things that we, again, take for granted because of electricity being so abundant for us. You know, Mother Nature is ready to provide the power. We just have to figure out storage to make it so that it's applicable the other 16 hours of the day that there wasn't generation. I know personally you do a ton of volunteer work specifically some coaching and youth sports, I think is really awesome. And I'm curious what it means to you to help pass along and coach the next generation, to mentor, to be there, to lead and support the next generation. How do you look at that role, that responsibility, that opportunity? Well, I mean, I put a lot of weight into it, to be honest. I was fortunate. I grew up in a really strong sports background. And it doesn't have to be just sports. It's just mentorship. Whether it's it's music or art or whatever it is, it's having that mentorship in place. And the coaches that I had in my life, starting with my parents, quite frankly, it morphs you into who you are. And I think on the sports side of things, the reason I'm so attracted to it is the team mindset. It's the collaborative approach. And one of the things that I talk to Lindsay about all the time is we're we people, not me people, right? It's really about the greater goal and and achieving kind of greatness. And I think anyone who's arrogant and, and kind of thinks that they can do it all is silly. I've been taught through a lot of my mentors throughout life that the smartest people in the world know that they don't know anything. You have to surround yourself with great people. I really enjoy the sports mindset. I really enjoy working with young people. We have a really great intern program at CORE. We have young people in here all the time. I love sitting with them and hearing their perspectives and learning from them. You know, I'm supposed to be the one teaching. I'm often the one learning. And 
it's really important to have that integration and to be able to listen to today's youth. If you listen and, and hear what they're trying to overcome, we can often fix problems right at the root before it becomes kind of something much, much larger. So I really enjoy it. I really enjoy coaching. I have two boys. One's about to be a senior in high school, which is just scary. And the other one's a freshman, which I think might be scarier, actually. <laughs> but both heavily involved in sports. And I love what it brings to the table. A lot of other family members involved in, in the arts and music and other things, too. And you see those similar attributes that get brought yeah. in. And it's, it's really important. In your career as a coach, what's something that one of your players has taught you that you found valuable in your business life? You know, as you're trying to teach learning to listen, I, I know that that sounds kind of rudimentary, but it's something that you can't hear if you're talking. So I'm, you know, the varsity basketball coach here. We have a basic rule. If I'm talking, no one else talks. If anybody else is talking, I won't talk. That's a huge thing. And I, you know, if you look at what's happening politically and, you know, yeah. everywhere in the world right now, everybody's talking. No one seems to want to listen. So that's one of the biggest lessons. But there's honestly, there's so many. And every, student brings something different. Every student comes from a different place. Their home is different. Their family life is different. Their economic conditions are different. It's been a, a continuous learning process. And uh, I hope it never stops because if it does, something's wrong with me. I love that perspective. I think it's really, we need more of it. I agree wholeheartedly. We, you talked a lot about the challenges that we face resulting from the changing climate and kind of crisis there or extreme weather and those headlines in particular make it hard to believe that we can make a difference, that it's not too late or that we can change things for the better. And I'm curious how you would address that. How would you help someone to look towards the positive and try to make a, a positive difference? Yeah, I don't think anything is unrecoverable. So I, I think that's where I would start in this conversation is that any step that we make towards positivity is positive. And I'll expand on that just a little bit. In our industry, so when I say our industry, I mean the electrical world, renewables, right? All of that kind of environmental aspect of things too, because we're so entrenched in that. When we look at any positive gain that happens, right? I'll even use an example like a pipeline goes in, right? People look at the pipeline and it oftentimes has a negative effect, right? Oh, there's a pipeline there. It's moving oil, right? There's a problem. So I look at that differently. I look at that pipeline and I say, okay, so that pipeline is going from A to B right? That means there's no emissions. And people are like, well, well, what do you mean by that? I say, well, a truck, a boat, or a train is no longer moving that because if the oil is needed, it's going to be used. It is. It's going to get there one way or the other. Someone's going to make money on it. But if that pipeline went in, that means that there's no more emissions. So for someone who's having a hard time finding how we're going to get out of this downward circle that we seem to be in, certainly in environmentally, Look at every possible positive, right? Because the positives pile up to become an ultimate. And so as I look at this, we are not going to get to our goal in the blink of an eye. It's going to be a process. We have a lot of things that we have to overcome. There are going to be steps that we take in this process to make things better. The fact is, is that we need electricity. So we have to have it. If we don't figure out a way to make environmentally clean generation applicable and available at all times, that means that we have to have a morphed approach in, in doing that. And that's the first step. 
we're downsizing our consumption of fossil fuels and increasing our renewables. It's been happening for the last 12 years, maybe a little bit longer than that, right? So we are over 15% renewable. We're learning how to apply renewables to more things like manufacturing and other high demand areas. We're bringing more and more storage to the grid and our consumption is going to go down of fossil fuels. It's going to happen, but we it's going to take a little bit to get yeah. there. So I hope that people see all the little things that happen. That's kind of my advice. Look at all the little things because they become big really quickly. Last question. What do you hope that your legacy will be? <laughs> it's a big one. Oh, man. Well, that's a big word. That's a big word, right? There's a lot of meaning to that. I think my legacy business-wise, I think I've been, I'm super, super fortunate. I get to work with great people. I hope that my legacy on the business side is that we were a huge push in bringing energy storage to the grid to allow all the things that we talked about today, yeah. right? Renewable integration, reliable energy, disaster recovery, resiliency, redundancy, power quality, all those things. I hope that we are the tip of the spear in bringing that to the United States and making sure that it is coming from here and that we are independent and have enough deliverable from this country to provide for this country. Because as you compare us to other countries in the world, we're pretty self-sustaining everywhere else, right? So this is really, really important that we do that. That would be my business legacy. I would say on a personal side, I just really want to do, do good for everybody. I'm, you know, I, why I coach, it's why I do the things that I do here. And, I I care about the people that work for us just so much and all of the things that we've been able to achieve in a really short amount of time. My community is a big deal to me, you know, and my family is an even bigger deal. So I just hope that people look back and say, wow, he did something great for the community, for the people here, for our youth, and hopefully for the world on the business side of things. A huge thanks to Jay for joining me on today's episode. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from Reason Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker, as well as Greg Hurrigal and Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. All right, we'll see you next week.